Welcome to the Traverse Podcast with me, Debbie Hannon. So, theatre has changed. COVID-19 has sent us into a reflective pause. It has inspired art, activism, the examination of power, and demanded a new normal as we all invent what comes next. This series is inspired by Arundhati Roy's statement, the pandemic is a portal. And these podcasts are a selection of interviews with the people who are shaping that future, inside and outside of theatre. They are intimate, candid conversations about lived experience where people speak their truth to power. It's important to say here that our interviewees speak freely on a range of topics. Whilst you might not share all their points of view, they are here to be heard. Each one is a provocation which looks to examine theatre making and storytelling, how we do it and its place in our new world. This episode's guest is playwright Abhishek Majumdar, speaking to me from his office in Bangalore. Abhishek is, in his essence, an internationalist, which leads our talk today. His plays are global in vision, and his productions are often banned for speaking too much truth to power. In early 2019, I directed his play Palaf, the Royal Court Theatre, an epic play about a Tibetan nun who challenges the power of the People's Republic of China. It took years of research, including, in 2018, a joint trip with me and Abhishek, heading in a tiny car for 16 hours, all the way from Delhi up through the Himalayas, eventually making it to Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama lives. We first met on this adventure, and that surreal trip cemented our connection. Here, we speak about his experience of handing out food rations through the pandemic, how it has exposed the seams of our society, and we question how internationalism can work post-COVID and what it even meant in the first place. Hello, Abhishek, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Yeah, I'm okay. Brilliant to speak to you. Where are you in the world right now? Can you give us a picture? Brilliant to speak to you too. It's been a long time. It's wonderful to catch up. I am in Bangalore right now in my office which is a flat that is about 15 or 20 minutes away from my flat where I live. It's a place where I come to work. It has a nice little kitchen. It has lots of books. It has this mattress to sit on and uh, a desk. Pretty much all I need from 10 to 8 in a day. And then I go back home and then I come back the next day. Yeah. And I think last time we saw each other, it would have been in London, probably on the opening night of Pala, which was now about a year and a half ago. Which is how, for our listeners, how Abhishek and I met. We actually originally met in Delhi, I think it would have been. Yes, at the airport. Yes, at the airport before we travelled in a car for about 16 hours. (laughs) (laughs) To Dharamsala, yeah. Yeah, to Dharamsala. And then we went in this car up the tiniest, most winding roads. Yeah up to the mountains about three in the morning so that we could do further research for Abhishek's plays Pala, which I then directed at the Royal Court. So since then, the world has changed quite significantly. I'm going to start with a big question. How has the pandemic been for you? Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a lot of things, I think. In the beginning, I think every, like many other people, even I thought it was going to be this holiday. Actually for, you know, the, the playwright side of me, it wasn't too bad in the beginning, is what I thought. Because, you know, there's social distancing, which is pretty much the dream of someone who writes. Everybody's shut down, so nobody's going to send emails. That's pretty much part of my dream. And there's this thing about, you know, it's not just <laughs> India, but the whole world, which had shut down. So it wasn't like anyone was going to make any demands. So initially it was like that. But then there was a huge food crisis in Bangalore. 
it still is there with people who are migrant workers and who are daily wage labor so some friends of mine and i we run a free school for children and one day someone said you know we should go and give some ration like dal and rice and vegetables to parents of two of our students so we went out in our car with just enough for these two families and people started appearing from everywhere because they were hungry and they had never asked for food they were all people who had always earned a wage so now there was a lockdown and they couldn't you know india india's largest economy is the informal economy so 3 months later we had 9000 families on our list and it became a huge operation which was not only in bangalore then it was also in bengal where there was a massive cyclone and in kashmir and so on and so forth so that pretty much took over my life for 3 months in lockdown but about a month month and a half ago i got back to working and when the lockdown opened i don't think things got solved the problems changed but now i'm back to directing a show so that's a good thing so it's been a lot of these things and it's also been you know about our daughter being at home she is the one who has adapted the most effectively i think to the lockdown she's very happy that her parents are were at home all the time and it was great so yeah i think there's a few things to learn from the little ones how quickly they adapt to such situations without looking like victims which most adults all of us were <laughs> in that space yeah agreed yeah and some projects have got every every project has got pushed by a year um, which is weird because projects got pushed and also projects got signed so i'm not sure whether it was a good thing or a bad thing but this all these things are going on i think it's interesting what you said about how uh it's not that things have solved it's that the problems have changed which i feel like is this is the exact moment that britain is in you mentioned directing a show which made me really excited there because theater here has stopped still there's a few live theater events but they are socially distanced or they're on headphones but they're incredibly limited and now you're back in the rehearsal room so what's shifted in theater where you are actually nothing has shifted theaters are shut here as well completely just a few days ago there has been a notice from the government that from 21st september we can have open air shows for 100 people but the theater that i am directing this for is rangashankara which is the big theater in bangalore and they are going to open whenever we open and i am going to go away to abu dhabi most likely sometime soon so if we were in conversation and we thought we shouldn't build a show before i leave and we are going to play it on the stage most likely on 28th of september without an audience and have it recorded and then uh, streamed in about two weeks so it's one of those things which is made keeping in mind that the first thing that's going to happen with it is actually it's going to stream which, which is really weird because suddenly we are making shows which stream first and then see a live audience later you know it's the opposite of what was going on so i mean i'm having strange conversations with my sound designer now his first question is what platform are we streaming on and you know we've been working together for four years and i'm thinking oh i've never thought of that yes of course this is not platform are we streaming this was not a question that right? so he said something incredible to me yesterday in rehearsal he said once you make the show and it's open i need two weeks so i said what do you need two weeks for 
He said, I have to do a post-production. I have to clean it up. I have to set it up. And then I said, yeah, of course. Like, you know, we have lived in the theater so far thinking that on the night of the show, you go, you have a cast party, right? You go and drink. But now suddenly it's pushed by two weeks because the actual work starts after that because people have to <laughs> clean up the image and the sound. And it's strange. <laughs> yeah. That is incredible. <laughs> What's happened across the whole theatre world where you are? Like, has everyone shifted online? Have places shot? Have places... Or just, are you waiting as a government supported? Oh, no. Our government is very busy building the Ram Temple in North India. There is a Ram Temple which was contested for many years. There was a mosque there which was broken in 1992, claiming that the mythological god Ram was actually born there. I'm very interested to find out what was the date. If he was born, there must be a date as well. And I, I don't know a single village in India which doesn't have a claim to Ram. You know. And that is the best thing about Debi, that everybody can claim it. But somehow, this is the place where he was born. So the government decided to spend a huge amount of money laying down a silver, I think it was a 30 kilogram silver brick as the foundation stone <laughs> for this temple which is going to come up and the government of that state has allotted 2000 crores which is like 2 million dollars or something 2 million something which is just a huge number for me it's it's really it's a big number as far as i'm concerned to building this temple in a place where which which has one of the lowest rates of like hospitals education and all of this so that's what is really going on in india in between all this, we had a major skirmish with China. As you know, India and China are COVID-free, so we have time to have a battle at this point of time. So these two <laughs> COVID-free nations had a battle. It was just bizarre because uh, I think in these countries, you know, like America, India, partly UK with Boris Johnson, like these men <laughs> have led us to a point where the coronavirus pandemic has become secondary. Like, I'm actually not going to remember this year because of the pandemic. Weirdly, it's going to be remembered for completely different things. In between all this, our prime minister does this thing called monkey bat. Monkey bat means the words of his heart, like his, his inner thoughts. So he doesn't do press conferences. He has never done a press conference. You can't ask him anything. He says what he feels and you have to hear it. So he decides, like, said so tomorrow he'll say, this Saturday I'm going to do monkey bath at 9 o'clock. So he's going to come at 9 and you have to log in. Uh, and he will say something. Like he will say, last time he said something about the dogs of the police and the army and how incredibly brave they are and how dedicated they are to the country and so on and so forth. As India recorded the highest ever one-day spike in cases in the world. He had nothing to say about it. He was actually talking about the dogs of the police and the, the canine force. Then one day he came and said that next Sunday at nine o'clock at night, for nine minutes, everybody should get to their balcony or their terrace, take a spoon or something and bang a vessel as a means of praising the doctors. <laughs> I think we might have given him that idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's got it. But of course, the, the best thing about this is that he's forgotten that he's the Indian prime minister. A large part of the country doesn't have houses and they don't have balconies. The place where he's picked this idea from 
is a place which has balconies. So many people had no idea what to do, but loyalists went and did that. Then he came up with this idea that the armed forces would use their helicopters to shower flower petals on hospitals as a mark of gratitude. So as people were dying on the streets and walking thousands and thousands of kilometers to go from the city to the village so that they avoid starvation. And as all of this was going on, helicopters were dropping flower petals and people were banging this thing and the Ram Temple is being created. There is a guy who said once the foundation stone is said there, the coronavirus will go away. The day the foundation stone was put there, out of all the people who attended it, about 50% of them had coronavirus. So <laughs> it's like, uh, God is not listening. That is what is happening mm-hmm. in India at the moment. In the theater world, there are so many different kinds of theater. So most people, most of the practitioners are not in the cities who are the folk and traditional performers. And I think they are the ones who are most affected because there's no question of going online as far as they are concerned. And it's also a disease that is being pushed from the rich to the poor. So it is going to the villages where the facilities are much lesser than in the cities and they don't have alternate means of income. The traditional performers rely on performing to run their houses, which is not the dominant form of performing in the cities. Most people in the cities do something else, whatever, ad films or voiceovers or directing or teaching or something. So, yeah, in the cities, people have moved online. So the city-country divide has deepened. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And within the city, you know, like this really, the pandemic has shown us the real fault lines of our cities. The 9,000 families that I just told you about, they were all within three kilometers of my house. I have lived here for 11 years in this house and never seen even like 90% of those little huts because they are mostly belong to people who work in the services, you know, who build the factory, who are construction workers or cleaners, cooks, and their houses get lost between the apartments. So it's not on our circuit. When I go to, from my house to my office to my daughter's school, these places are invisible. And I was so amazed and horrified at the same time to realize that, you know, as a writer, I go to places and research. And here's like my neighborhood, which I had no idea what the real shape of it was. Till this mm-hmm. pandemic arrived and it, it threw open this, this fault line. Yeah, as you said, you go places and research. Like uh, when I think of internationalism and theatre, I think of you because you you mentioned Abu Dhabi, you teach there, your plays have really travelled far and wide. That's a big question, but, you know, geography has shifted now, possibly permanently. What do you reckon is the future of internationalism now? Uh, You've got two works on in Dubai and New Zealand, right? I'm a little confused about internationalism at the moment because, you know, like internationalism anyway means something else In Europe, internationalism means knowing more about the world. In the Indian subcontinent, Indian internationalism means doing better in life. That difference is obviously like a post-colonial reality. But now what has happened, strangely, for me, the next one or two years are pretty much unaffected because I had signed up on things. Like I'm writing a new show for Royal Court. I'm writing a book on theater for Bloomsbury and all of this, which is... Anyway, spread out over the next one and a half years. And of course, a lot of my work in Hindi. But I'm concerned about what will happen after. 
Because now when theatres open, they will have the responsibility to first employ playwrights and directors who are in the region, as they should. Which means that most people who were outside and were part of what is broadly called international representation, we would have much lesser work after two years. But having said that, there are a lot of small projects which are opening up. What this pandemic has also done is that it suddenly made us all similar, at least in a disease. So like I did this play called Salt for a Swedish theater, which then got translated to a three or four Indian languages and it's getting performed, which was from nowhere. Like I, I never thought that it would be a like serious sort of play which would have a life. I thought it was a one-off thing. Those kind of things are happening. Dubai is opening because of the expo. And I'm not really sure what that means. Dubai had decided long ago that a lot of money has been spent on the expo. So things must be normal by October. So everything is open. And people in Dubai are going out and rehearsing and everything. For another quick bit of context, the expo he's referring to is the 2020 World Exposition in Dubai, where Abhishek teaches playwriting for a few months each year. It's like a huge international festival, it's meant to bring the world together, and this was meant to be the first one in the Middle East. When I was speaking to Abhishek, it was still meant to be going ahead this October, but it's since been delayed a year. The buildings that have made for it are absolutely incredible. The sustainability pavilion is beautiful, and it's well worth a Google after this. So they are doing a Hindi play of mine, which was, which is again another five, maybe five years old. And in New Zealand, they are doing uh, Halston High Street. In Mexico, they are doing something. Uh, mm. But it's, it's not a, I don't know if there is a serious pattern to it. I think it's just that I'm a bit lucky that people have <laughs> read these plays and they want to do them. There is some element of luck involved, you know, like people have read it or they've come to know about it and they want to, they think these plays are speaking to them. I'm surprised that, you know, somebody in New Zealand wants to do something I've written or somebody in Mexico is interested. But I do think internationalism will change. I mean, the, the, the big fear is the irony that we are at a moment where a disease has traveled around the world, but it will end up making us more insular. Could you describe for the listeners what SALT is about? Salt is about three women, a mother and two daughters, all of whom stay in a small hut opposite a construction site. And during the lockdown, they don't have enough to eat. So the mother gives the children rice and salt. So every day, the rice reduces and the salt increases because there's, and she's trying to kind of pass it off because it looks white and it's the same kind of thing. So the mother believes that the children eat as long as they have a story. So the mother is trying to create longer stories so that the children feel that they're eating more. Whereas the children have their own versions. The older sister believes that, okay, I am not going to hurt my mother. So I think she's going to start telling really short stories so that we finish quickly because there isn't much. And the youngest child thinks that hunger is the competition that she's winning. She really believes that, you know, if you love the country, you have to go hungry. And she's kind of doing better than her mother and sister. So it's this thing about, you know, how hunger plays out in a family, a poor family. And the children think the mother is telling the story, keeping in mind how much food they have. And the mother thinks they're eating, keeping in mind how long is the story. So it's, it's about the connection between 
you know, stories and, and food and about dignity, you know, like we were going to so many places for those three months with food and really what was more difficult to unpack for ourselves than hunger was shame. You know, to, to ask for food in front of your children is killing. You know, like if you've worked all your life and you might be poor, but you have this pride, you're telling your children that, you know, you have to grow up to be hardworking people. That's why I'm sending you to school. And then one day you see that, you know, in the apartments, people are buying things online and delivery is arriving. And actually, you know, they are posting pictures of cakes and, you know, people are trying Greek salad and all of this is happening. And here's this family, which has done nothing. Nobody in their family has ever traveled abroad. They have not brought the virus from anywhere, but they just cannot go out and work and get rice. Yeah, it's incredibly striking. I read it on the Bengali Review that published it. I read it there. I think your breadth of interest and your breadth of reading and cultural influence seeps into your work. And even though potentially on paper, it might be strange that someone from Mexico connects to this. There's something in the in the very dramaturgical like base of the writing that does open it out to different cultures. Because we've all read, you know, there's plays about a moment and then there's plays that use that moment to talk about bigger things. And I think you're in that sort of second camp. But then the inside experience of that, of course, is that you're still a playwright, right? Who wants to get a commission. Like it's there's philosophy, there's connection, and then there's like getting your deadline. <laughs> Um, but that is the truth of the writer. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually not very, you know, my life has not been very commission-based. You know, I live in India and sometimes in Abu Dhabi for some time. And then I live in, sometimes in London and, and so on. But my home is India. Even when I've lived away from India for three years, I've always believed that this is this is home. So I'm very clear in my head. You know, it's it's next to a river. It has a tree. And... I can eat sitting anywhere with my hands. Like that, even if I lived abroad for 50 years, for me, home would be that. Uh, anywhere in the world, if you give me a river, a tree, and a place, thing that I can eat with my hand, I'm in India. So it hasn't been really about, that much about commission. So I'm really enjoying writing this book, you know, which, for Bloomsbury, which is, about, which is called Theatre Across Borders, which is about making theatre in Tibet and making theatre in Kashmir. and making, So when I was commission for it, I thought, oh, this complete disaster has turned out to be a career. This bizarre thing that there's no one place that I work in. And if I'm interested in working somewhere like in West Africa, then I'm in West Africa. There's no industry really that I belong to, which is good and bad. I'm very lucky to have been at the Royal Court two times already. And this is the third time. And every time I'm a bit surprised, like everything that I've written for the Royal Court has been banned in one country or another. So it is, <laughs> it's bizarre that they're still commissioning. My sister says this to me, you know, my sister is eight years older than me. She's the most encouraging sister you can find on the world. You know, she told me a few years ago when they were doing Jins of Eidgah, I remember at the Royal Court, they said there was a scene in which I had written 11 characters. Then my sister called and I said to her, you know, they're talking about this. And my sister said, reduce it, cut some characters and have less. I said, what do you mean? You don't even know what play I'm writing. And she said, look, you have been a loss-making proposition all your life. You were nationally a loss-making proposition. You were a loss-making proposition for your family. And you are going to turn out to be a loss-making proposition in the world. Like internationally, you'll be known as 
somebody you can sink your money on. So that's pretty much my career, you know. Like, so I'm I'm okay. You know, it's, for me, it's fine. Like anybody who has money to sink, I can come and do a play which will get banned or you know, whatever. So. <laughs> so Abhishek will offer you a play with twenty characters. It will be banned. Um, at least one government will turn against you. <laughs> then somebody will stop the printing of the book. That has also happened last year. I suppose the hard thing is that, you know, sometimes, like last year when the whole thing with Pala happened and was banned in China. Yes. And it was banned in China means also that it's banned in Tibet, right? There are copies of the play in Tibet, but they are not actual copies. And now we yeah. have this Tibetan translation. So that is available. The problem is that in about four months last to last year, when we were making Pala, two of my plays had got banned. One was in India and one was in China. I, for the first time, found myself thinking that, but then what will I do? You can't start writing something else, right? I mean, I'll have to go back and change my whole life from the age of five to get to a point where you write something else. You, you just write what you write. It's not to a client. There's no client in the theater, right? You're, you're writing a play. But in the pandemic, I also think that's the least of the world's problems. Like my plays are not what will change the world at all. If they can do a little bit of, if they can speak for a world, for any world, I'm happy. I'm thinking there about you teaching future playwrights in Abu Dhabi. How are you speaking to them about the world and their writing now? Because exactly like you said, British theatre anyway has entered this massive online moment of existential crisis (laughs) that everyone is just like, why are we doing it this way and what are we doing and how are we doing it and should we be doing it? So I'm wondering how you're speaking to your students from all over the world about their place in the world now as playwrights. I mean, I'm very fortunate to have a very diverse class in New York University in Abu Dhabi. In the last five years, I've probably had once that there are two students from the same country. So they're always like from Jordan and Syria and from, you know, from the US, from UK, so on which is helpful because this is such a moment that when they listen to each other's assignments, listen to each other's drafts, I think automatically you feel a kind of, you feel that you're not alone, which is what I think a lot of students are feeling. I start teaching on next Tuesday, but we're already in touch with students to find out what are the conditions that they're in? Do they have a room to themselves? I have a student who's sitting in Taiwan and then one student sitting somewhere in Africa and then the third student is sitting somewhere in the Middle East, different time zones. And I'm here, I'm in Bangalore, where, you know, as a professor, I have to tell them on day one that there might be a power cut and you'll have to wait. It's, it's a reality. You have to wait for two minutes for it to come back, which is not a problem for me. I grew up with no power at nights, all night, very often. So for me, yeah. the, the, the notion that you are going to have 24 hours power is just about 10 years old. But I don't know, for many students, it's not like that. You know, like children who grew up in Dubai or in New York, they, they, they don't think of this as, a, as something that can happen. But it's bringing us together in a strange way, right? I think that is internationalism. You yeah. read each other's drafts and see each other's issues. And like, we really don't know what is happening in Nepal during the pandemic, right? I've never seen a news report anywhere in any newspaper which says Nepal has this. or I've seen something about Sri Lanka. But even the representation of the pandemic is so dependent on power and which country is big. And, you know, it's as if some lives are more important than others. And 
all of this. Even in our subcontinent, India is the news. Next, followed by Pakistan, then Bangladesh, then Sri Lanka, then Nepal, then Bhutan. So I think the playwrights are going to be working on very differently this year because of the way they can work. But at the same time, I think as storytellers, they're living in a time where there is a huge event, but you can't find a moment for it. Like, you know, when the bomb fell on Hiroshima, people could write because there was a moment. This happened. When the world war started or stopped, you know, Hitler shot himself. Okay, so there is a moment. This is when the chemical weapon, this is a moment. But now we are at a time when there is no moment. It's continuous. And we don't know if the worst is over or if the worst is coming. We don't know if the virus is the big problem or hunger is the big problem or unemployment will be the huge issue or domestic violence is the big issue. or like What is it? What I'm very concerned about to, to end this answer is, you know, when the vaccine comes out, we are going to see the shape of the world in, in its full form. Because it's going to be there in the world, but it's not going to be available to everybody. We know who's going to get it first and who's going to get it last and who's never going to get it. That will throw up a lot of things for even these playwrights to think about. How do you even start to make art from the middle of all this flux? I think, you know, theatre is still in a better place. I think theatre's greatest limitation is this over-dependence on conflict. Suppose everything was fine. All theatres would shut down. It would be impossible to do anything. If you're in No or Kabuki, you would be able to do a play about four seasons. And it would last like 17 hours and it'll be fine. But if you're in any kind of Western dramaturgy, but we have all been taught that performance is conflict. The only real challenge for us is that pandemic is telling us that your structure of playwriting is now going to be closer to sort of environmental peace or more broad uh, open time kind of scene as opposed to something you can write about a shorter time. Compressing time is very difficult, I think, at the moment. But I also think the fallacy of it is this, the online world will save the theatre, you know, or like you have to start writing plays differently because we are online. Because I'm thinking of, you know, the moment when printing was started. Did we start writing plays differently because we started printing? Did we start writing plays differently because we had, you know, like ink pens and not quill? So a new technology, which we have not invented, was there. We are just using this thing. So why would it change how we make theater is something I cannot understand. It would change how we see things, like very very practically. People would not be able to see the full size of the actor or the scenography in that way. But structurally, why this would change something in writing or even in direction? I mean, you should, you should tell me, like, as a device, yes, I can understand. But would, does it change your metaphor, your sense of metaphor? I think it comes back to time for me. When I speak to younger directors, <laughs> probably unhelpfully esoteric, but I always tell them that their medium is time. Like you, you think your medium is sound and light and people, but your actual medium is time because that's what you've bought into with this person who's arrived in the room to watch you. So how are you shaping their time for this two and a half hours? And you can stretch a moment, you can compress it. And I think time is maybe the thing that is hardest to manage with the experience to the screen because you are hoping rather than definitely holding so you're hoping that people don't pause don't walk away don't or or do pause and walk away at the right moment 
But it doesn't necessarily shift metaphor. I think you're right. I think it just shifts the elements that you can control and the way that you hold attention. I always think of this time as this experience I had in Burkina Faso, you know, in West Africa. There is a theater school called Gambiri. In Gambiri, there is like a half stage. The stage is partly covered and the audience is in open air. And a lot of theaters in Burkina Faso are like that, in the capital, Ouagadougou. Somebody was telling us that every night at about 8.15 or 8.20, there's an aircraft of Ethiopian Airways, which comes from Addis Ababa to Ouagadougou. And at that time, when the flight goes, the players and the audience pause. No matter what moment, what scene, they just pause. Nothing happens, but everybody actually takes responsibility to keep the moment. Everybody understands this, that if one of us drops it, we lose where we were. But at the same time, it's a theater understanding. What people don't do in Burkina Faso, which I think they would do in Delhi or Bombay, is that they don't take out their phone and start checking. They don't do that because they know that Othello is in the room and I have to wait for Ethiopian Airlines to cross and then it'll happen. I think we are in that moment right now where this plane is going on our head and we have to wait for it to go and we have to believe in each other and tell each other, you know, we'll all hold the moment. We don't have to pull out our phones. We just believe that it'll go and we will get back. Which is not to say that we shouldn't prepare for the future, but preparing for the future is the way we prepare for Othello to then finish the scene. It's not to change what we are inside. That reminds me of sitting in the arches in Glasgow, a very different part of the world. And when the train goes overhead, everyone waits. A final question for you. What do you hope for right now? I I really hope for the health of my family. First of all, because in India, the numbers are increasing. I think we are quite safe, but immediately that's my greatest concern. I hope people have enough to eat. It's been an intense experience going to all these places where people... It's, it's actually changed what I eat. It's completely changed wow. what I can eat and how much I can eat. Because, you know, I've seen people running like with a packet of salt, children, so that, you know, they get that. But yeah, if I have to put my finger to it, it could be the health of my... My family, my daughter, my wife, my sister, all of them, all of you, friends, you know, around the world. Yes. Yeah. And let's keep our health so we can hold this pause moment until it finishes. Thank you so much, Abhishek, as ever, for your insight and humour and warmth. And I wish you and yours good health. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to speak to you, Debbie. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Abhishek Majumdar. Please tune in to our next episode where I'll be speaking to director Leo Ray Gasson about being someone who was already working in digital theatre well before everyone had to turn online. The music for this podcast was composed by Patricia Panther with sound design by Richard Bell and I've been your host, Debbie Hannon. Please do check out traverse.co.uk to see our upcoming work in Trav3, our online venue. The Traverse is funded by Creative Scotland and the City of Edinburgh Council with additional support from the Scottish Government Performing Arts Venues Relief Fund. Traverse Theatre Scotland Limited is a registered charity, number SC002368.